right. Welcome. Welcome to the Biblos Network. We are so glad that you have decided to, to join us on a, on a journey into the Word of God, the beauty of the Word of God. And hopefully today, by the time we're finished, then you will find yourself enriched, strengthened, edified, encouraged. Those are the goals that we have set here at the Biblos Network. We want to articulate the apostolic message for the world in general, and we want to help strengthen the body of Christ. And that is true of all apostolic Pentecostals, whether you are WPF or UPCI, ALJC, Independent, PAW, uh, Cool JC, whatever, whatever background that you come from, we want to be a source of edification for you for the glory of God. Today, I wanted to share with you some things that have been on my heart. Uh, one of the things that we're excited to announce is if you look down underneath this video in the little link area, <clears throat> I'm sure there's a technical name for it that escapes me at the moment, but there will be a link to our Biblos merchant profile where we are selling coffee mugs. We have them ready. You can go on, order a Biblos coffee mug, and they will ship it to your house, and you can help participate in the mission. We've got some exciting things to bring to you. <clears throat> and you can drink from your Biblos mug while we explore the great things of God together. So I hope that you'll join us with that, support the network. The proceeds are going to help continue to fund, to continue to purchase equipment and to to fund missional efforts. We we see the day where where we're able to help spread the gospel throughout the world. So never before has purchasing a coffee mug and eventually we'll get to clothing and things of that nature. Never before has that been so intricately tied to mission. So God bless you, and I'm glad we can provide that, and I'm excited about it. Soon I'll have one of my own mugs, and then I'll be drinking from it, and we can have a cup of coffee together, talk about the great things of God. A thought occurred to me the other day when I was praying, and I want to share it with you today, how important obedience to the pattern of the Word of God is. And what I want to talk to you today in particular is about Moses and Balaam. Moses and Balaam. A lot of people might not make the connection between the two, but the truth is Moses and Balaam were contemporaries. You read about Moses in the book of Exodus, you read about Balaam in the book of Numbers, and then later in the book of Joshua, but they are two big figures in the scripture. Nobody, uh, or rather maybe with the exception of Abraham, David, and uh, obviously Jesus Christ, but Moses is a towering figure in the scripture. People might overlook Balaam, but the similarities between the two are striking. And to put the two side by side, living in the same time, having access to the same people, and having the opportunity to talk to God in a very similar manner, it is striking how closely paralleled they are. And the difference matters. 
the difference between the two men and the difference between our world, the apostolic world, and the rest of Christendom or people of faith. The, the, the difference is similar, and I want to talk about that today. So who is Balaam? Balaam is this guy in the book of Numbers who, who talks to God. He hears from God, and he is a prophetic figure in the Scripture. He speaks to the Lord. He sees angels. He, he understands spiritual dynamics. And so the Balak, the king of Moab, he wants to connect with, with Balaam and talk with Balaam and and find out if Balaam is willing to help him overcome Israel, curse Israel. Uh, Balak is actually here in Numbers 22, verse 10. He is the son of Zippor, the king of Moab. So he would have been a prince. He would have prince, been a prince of that day. <clears throat> yeah. And... So here's the story where he, this Balak comes to him and says, hey, we want to overcome Israel. We are concerned about their growth. We're concerned about how powerful they're becoming. And we want to know, Balaam, will you come and will you curse them for us? Can you, can you find a way to curse them? Can you, you get God to curse them? Pray for us. Intercede to God that he'll stop them from growing and taking dominion. Well, you can't curse that which God has blessed. And that's basically what Balaam, Balaam told him. I cannot and will not curse that which God has blessed. You cannot curse the people of God. Um, God has put his hand on them. He has blessed them. The Abrahamic promise is upon them. And as long as they stay in covenant with God, God will bless them. It is the will of God to be blessed. And I'll say at the outset here today that I am convinced that people overlook the importance of of blessing. Blessing, uh, someone commented on one of the recent videos that I did, I began to talk just about one aspect of blessing, which was financial. And whenever I do that, there are people who question that because there is this feeling that Christians should live in poverty and glorify that poverty. But, but blessing is a lot bigger than finance. First of all, blessing is being saved. It is the grace of God. It is the gift of God, the unmerited favor of God that allows men and women to have access to the Lord. Blessing is, is the Holy Ghost, walking with God and feeling after God, fellowship with God. Blessing is having a godly marriage, having godly children, and watching them grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Blessing is having a, a church that preaches truth. And, and access to the truth. Our family always taught us, my mother would say it often, thank God you were born into the truth. Thank God you were born into the book of Acts oneness message, the holiness message of the scripture. And I do, I thank God every day for that. God has been so very good to us. But blessing does encompass financial dynamics and people will comment and misinterpret what I say when I talk about blessing, the truth is blessing is the vehicle by which God shows his favor upon his people. They will outcompete everybody around them. 
if they apply the principles of God. I told somebody today, honesty will always outcompete dishonesty. Always. Responsibility will always outcompete irresponsibility. And order will always overcome chaos. The principles of the things of God are the greatest force the world has ever known. And the greatest weapon the world has ever known is the love of God. Hell has no defense against the love of God. And so when God promised blessing to Abraham, nothing can undo that. They, wherever they go, they will prosper. Wherever they put their foot, God will give it to them. And that heritage belongs to me and it belongs to you. So I, I believe that our lifestyle, our conduct, our choices, and yes, even our finances will reflect the, the blessing of the Lord. So Balaam is looking at Israel and Balak wants him to curse them or somehow get God to curse them. And he tries multiple times. Now, first of all, God told Balaam, don't go with them. If you read it, I think it's Numbers 22. Balak comes to Balaam and he, he wants him to curse Israel. And when Balaam goes to the Lord to talk to the Lord, the Lord says, what men are, thee, what men are these with thee? You know, who you are around matters. And God did not recognize them as covenant people. Hang around covenant people. Be with people who love God because God immediately identified the foreignness of what Balaam was beginning to entertain. Balaam is an example of a person who has spiritual insight and maybe you could even say a prophetic figure in the scripture. An example of a preacher who is beginning to associate with others that are not of God, who God does not recognize. The primary trait of Balak was that he offered Balaam money. And initially, Balaam comes to God and says, hey, can I go with these men? God said, no, don't do it. And so Balaam goes back and says, I can't. The Lord told me that I cannot do this. Balak offers him money. Now, and then later on, we, we call, you know, you see in the New Testament, it's, it's, the scripture says that he ran greedily after the error of reward. So people begin to sell out for money. They begin to capitalize on the things of God, on the gospel, monetize them, make them to where they benefit them selfishly. Balaam begins to fall for that. You know, in one place, it says that the dumb ass speaking with man's voice, I like this phrase, forbade the madness of the prophet. So there was a form of madness that began to overtake Balaam, and, and it was the love of money. That is a form of madness to God. Anything outside the mind of Christ is madness. Anything that says give up on the things of God, walk away from the beautiful truths of God is a form of madness. This world is rapidly devolving down into a, a death spiral of madness and insanity. And the only remedy is the mind of Christ. Everything else is madness. And so it's crazy. Anything outside of Jesus Christ is crazy. So people say, are you going to leave church? Ah, that's crazy talk. <laughs> are you going to give up on Acts 2.38? Never. That's crazy talk. 
well, why don't you just entertain some thoughts on this Trinitarian dogma over here? Uh Uh-uh, that's crazy. That's the madness of the prophet. And any compromise that starts to play with that and, and distort that or pervert that is beginning to follow the error of Balaam. Now, you know, it goes on. If you read it in the Bible, the more Balak says curse them, Balaam blesses them. And he says, I can't speak anything but what the Lord says speak. And finally, um, you know, God told him initially, don't follow Balak. Well, when he offers him money, he goes and asks God again. And this time, God said, go ahead and go. <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting dialogue there because Balaam was like, oh, oh, you changed your mind. Well, God hadn't changed his mind. God was giving him an opportunity to demonstrate what was in his heart. He had already told him once. And the question is, how many times has God got to tell you? Just because he offered you money, now you think God's going to change his mind? Of course not. And so when Balaam went, the Bible says God was wroth. God was angry with him. And it's the famous story where as he goes, he is on a donkey and the donkey sees an angel. Balaam does not see the angel and the angel stood in the way ready to kill Balaam. So the donkey stops. He, he does not want to go any further. <coughs> He can see that there's obviously a problem. And it's interesting to point out that there, Balaam did not see it. Balaam did not recognize the threat and the danger. Balaam did not see the danger that he should have seen. And the question arises in my mind, was there a time when he could have seen it? Was there a time when he was more sensitive, when he was more aware of what was happening with his surroundings? It's an interesting idea. Why does this donkey see something he doesn't see? And I've met people before that compromise on the things of God. They chase after earthly dynamics. They fall in love with money. They fall in love with self-interest, what the Bible calls the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Was there a time when Balaam would have seen it, when he would have been sensitive enough, when he would have hearken to the things of God, but now he's growing blind. He's losing the connection because he talked to God. Look at the similarities between Balaam and Moses. Both of them talk to the Lord. Both of them are in mountains when we find them talking to the Lord. Both of them are, they see angels in their ministry. In both cases, angels stood in the way to kill them. I mean, the the similarity is pretty striking. And the difference winds up being that Moses obeyed the pattern. That's the key. The, the, The main difference between Balaam and Moses is Moses said that when God spoke to him, God says to Moses, I should say, See that thou make the tabernacle according to the pattern which I showed thee in the mount. Moses was obedient to the heavenly pattern. He saw into the heavenlies. So did Balaam. Moses talked to God. So did Balaam. Uh, They had a, a walk with God, a relationship with God. God spoke to them. God recognized them. God did not recognize Balak and asked Balaam, who are these men? I never want it to be said that there are influential people in my life that God does not recognize. Why am I with them? Why am I associating with them? 
So Balaam begins to be tempted, to be pulled. He still speaks the things of God. And you'll find that there are false prophets who can still speak things. They still see things. They even still hear from God. Balaam heard from God. You know, in the Old Testament, it teaches that God would try his people by allowing certain prophecies to come to pass to see and, and, and allow a prophet to speak something that would lead people astray to see if his people would follow him. The, the main indicator of whether a prophet is right or wrong is not whether they have miracle signs or wonders. The main indicator is will they follow the word of God? The word of God is the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. We stand and fall on the word of God. So the old saying that I heard growing up was, we don't follow miracle signs and wonders, they follow us. Janice and Jambres that withstood Moses could provide miracles and signs and wonders. And Pharaoh, who didn't bother to look beneath the surface, was, was fooled by that, was led astray by that. So Balaam is the archetypal image of the false prophet who sells out for money. And I could, I could point to a lot of preachers who have done it. They become gifted. They become very talented, very charismatic. They, they, they become very um, popular among the people. People begin to listen to them. They begin to give them adulation and to exalt them. And they fall in love with that exaltation. They get lifted up. They get too big for their britches, my grandpa would have said. They fall in love with money and the popularity and the acclaim of people. And one place said they love the praises of men more than the praise of God. So, ultimately, when we see the, the end of Balaam's life, you find him in the book of Joshua. I don't know, 11, 12, 13, something like that. Joshua's conquering the land. And, and we see, or Moses is conquering the land, rather, and Joshua's leading the charge. We see that Balaam is killed. Israel puts everything to the edge of the sword. And, and, it, and it kill, they kill Balaam. They conquer him. They conquer the city. And Balaam, the Bible says he's put to the edge of the sword. And, and it doesn't call him Balaam the prophet. It calls him Balaam the soothsayer. What an indictment from a man that talked with the Lord. He is lowered to just a common soothsayer, one who has access to the spirit world, but God has shunned him <clears throat> and cut him off. He's not Balaam the prophet. <clears throat> He's Balaam the palm reader. Balaam the crystal ball fortune teller. What a sad ending to a man who talked with the Lord and communicated with God. When the Bible says that, that they put him to the edge of the sword and everything to the edge of the sword, that is a, an Old Testament metaphoric way of saying they ran it by the Bible. They put it to the test of Scripture. You want to put everything in your life to the edge of the sword. Everything you do needs to be put to the edge of the sword. If it passes the test of the sword, then, then God will honor it and bless it. Everything else in our life has to die. So if it doesn't pass the test of Scripture, we don't believe it. 
I mean, I could talk a lot about that. That 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 is seen from the very beginning of the sword, where that flaming sword stood at the way of the Garden of Eden, and it turned every which way. That living sword, that moving sword, that's the word of God. And in order to get back into Eden or the Edenic blessing, you got to go by the sword. And so they put everything to the sword. They put everything to the sword. I want to put um, my habits to the sword. I want to put my thoughts and my choices and decisions, the, the people I hang around, the, the environment I find myself in, put it to the sword. Does it match up with the scripture? Does it match up with what the Bible says? That is putting it to the sword. In the Old Testament, they literally, they literally went to battle with swords. But the weapons of our warfare in the New Testament are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So now we put everything to the sword in a spiritual manner. Every attitude, every thought, every decision, everything has to be put to the sword. Yes. They put Balaam to the sword. So that smooth-tongued compromiser, that silver-tongued false prophet, put him to the sword. Put their words to the sword. Don't, don't fall for their talk about faith and their talk about blessing and favor and overcoming and all the stuff, the platitudes that they throw out there. Are they truly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they preach Acts 2.38? Do they preach the new birth in John 3.5? Do they, are they willing to go out on that limb and, and suffer persecution for preaching the greatest message the world has ever heard? Do they preach the oneness of God and holiness and separation from the world? And if you don't know, why don't you know? If, if they haven't publicly declared themselves and preached the greatest message the world's ever heard, why? And that in itself is an indicator. Well, it's too divisive. The gospel is divisive. The Bible said that a sword would be in a man's house. And he said, think not, Jesus said this, think not that I came to bring peace, came not to bring peace, but a sword. And a house will be divided because of the truth. <clears throat> so the difference between Balaam and Moses is one obeyed the pattern and one did not. One followed money. Balaam followed what felt right, what seemed right in the moment. And he was willing to go against the counsel of God to, to get what he felt he needed to get. So now we go to Moses. Moses, very similar dynamics. He, he sees a burning bush, and there is the thicket, the bush, that it's, it's on fire, but it's not consumed. God speaks to him out of that bush. And by the way, that bush, uh, that burning bush is a metaphor of the day of Pentecost. That one day God would baptize us with the Holy Ghost and with fire. It would be a fire that would not consume, would not consume. And that it is a bush, you know, it's, it's a thorn bush. It's, it's, if you, if you study that out, it's the wilderness of thorns. Wilderness of sin literally means the wilderness of the thorns. And, and sin didn't mean transgression and, and iniquity. Sin meant thorn. Sinna is the Hebrew word for thorn. And, and Sinai, Sinai, is the mountain of the thorns. And so this is a thorn bush. And God was basically saying that I will baptize a people with 
the Holy Ghost in with fire. Moses, I'm going to show you what it's going to be like. God's going to come down onto your humanity, onto the jumbledness, the chaotic nature of humanity, onto the thorny dynamics of a person's life, into their chaos, into their attitudes, into their political problems, into the 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 disruption of their world and the chaos of their world. I'm going to come down on top of that and I'm going to baptize the carnal nature of men and women that has been repented of, been baptized, and what I have cleansed, don't call it common or unclean, and I'm going to come right down upon top of them and I'm going to be a burning, abiding fire on top of their humanity. That burning bush is a powerful, powerful metaphor of that. He's foreshadowing Acts 2.38. Moses goes, he he confronts Pharaoh, he delivers the people. They go through the Red Sea into the cloud, which is a powerful metaphor of the new birth. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. We've talked about that in the geography of salvation. And then he takes them out into the wilderness, the wilderness of sin. And, and then he goes up into a mountain, and God shows him the pattern that's in the mountain. So Balaam goes to a mountain. Moses goes to a mountain. Um, when Moses went to go do the work of God, the Bible said that he went forth without circumcising his son, and an angel of the Lord met him to slay him in the way. And so he, both of them have angels that they're dealing with. The difference is Moses has a wife that steps in. Now, where was Balaam's wife? I don't know. Did he have a wife? I'm not sure. Scripture doesn't say. But there was nobody to stop Balaam, the donkey um, began to stop and try to find another way around and to halt the progress and crushes Balaam's foot against the wall and and Balaam begins to curse the donkey and to beat the donkey and to rail against it and finally the donkey's mouth opens and he speaks and rebukes the madness of the prophet. And if you if you listen to the session on releasing the cult, that donkey is a beast of burden. It's, it's a type of ministry. It's a type of, of the burden bearer. If your pastor starts to balk, if your pastor sees the angel, if he halts and won't go any further and you begin to, in ignorance and in, in anger, chasing self-will, trying to get done what you want to get done and get to where you want to go in your flesh, if you begin to rail against the ministry and curse against the ministry, curse the beast of burden and to abuse it and to beat it, maybe the ministry sees something that, that you don't see. Thank God for godly pastors and godly leaders and, and men and women that, that would speak into your life, Sunday school teachers and, and elders that, that see things in the Holy Ghost that, that are the beasts of burden, the beasts of, of burden that carry the ministry. Moses has a wife that has taken the time to hear the word of the Lord. And she knows that he is headed down to Egypt to, to do this work. And he hasn't taken care of what God told him to. He did not circumcise their son. He has run afoul of God's purpose already. He's going out to do the work of God and hasn't even taken the time to, to handle what God has told them covenantally to do. And the angel was going to kill him because he was headed out in disobedience, just like Balaam was. 
but he had a wife to step in. Thank God for a godly spouse. I will tell you something about people who compromise. Many times it's because of an unbelieving spouse. God told them, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I have friends, men, who married women who did not hold the things of God like the man did. And vice versa. I have had girls, women that I grew up with, precious people that married unbelieving spouses, or I'll say carnal spouses, that pulled them away from the principles that their parents and grandparents put into them, always pulling to the world, always pushing them to walk away from the principles. It doesn't matter. It's you're, you're, you're old-fashioned. You're following those old rules, those old ways. Israel was plagued with this. There's no greater example than Ahab and Jezebel. Everybody wants to demonize Jezebel, and rightly so, but before you point to Jezebel's strong-willedness, you need to look at Ahab's weakness. You show me a a spouse that is strong-willed and out of order, and I'll show you a weak spouse that lets them just run over them. And the point is, don't marry someone that doesn't love God and someone that's grounded in the truth, grounded in Acts 2.38 and John 3.5. Don't date outside the church. Don't don't, uh, become familiar with and, and fall in love with someone who does not love the God of your forefathers. Moses had a woman that stepped in that was as zealous as he was. One of the greatest gifts you could ever have is a godly spouse that loves the Lord, that has your back, that watches out for you, that is prepared to sacrifice just like you are. I thank the Lord for a godly wife. I thank the Lord for a person that that loves the things of God and is in love with the purpose of God, stands steadfast in what she loves and knows. I thank God for it. And we have sons and a daughter-in-law that are precious, precious people of God because, you know, they say the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. If, 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 a, if a man marries a woman who doesn't love the things of God, she can plant things in those children. She can undermine that husband and vice versa. So can the man. The man can do the same thing to the woman. And I've seen many godly men and women undermined by a weak spouse who walks back on the things of God. Moses' wife saved him that day. And what a blessing and what a what a great turnout for him. It makes all the difference in the world. Many times a spouse will make or break a ministry. At the very best, a powerful person can be reduced to the bare minimum of serving the Lord by an unbelieving spouse. Or they can cause you to lose out altogether. You just give up the fight and you just go with it. And years later, you live this tormented existence when you look out and you see people living for God and you know that should be you. And if you're listening to me today and you find yourself in that position, it is never too late to do the right thing. Stand up for what the apostles bled and died for. You know, Jesus looked at the disciples one day and he said, there is no man that has left father and mother, husband, wife, houses and lands that won't receive back many times more in this life and in the life to come. Many people have stood up, even if it cost them the most dear relationship in their life. 
If you say, well, I can't, my spouse doesn't serve the Lord. They won't let me. They are not the arbiter of what is right and wrong. You are, you are responsible for your life and for the decisions that you make. And many people have had to make difficult decisions. Moses had a woman who loved the Lord and vice versa. You know, you could turn that around and later, you know, when they first met and Moses, Moses with his wife and, and Moses saved them from the herdsmen that were trying to dominate them and take over the well where they were. Moses was willing to fight for what was right for her. Later on, we see her fighting for what's right for him. So what a beautiful example of the relationship between a godly man and a godly woman. They fight for what is right. I have a friend that just um, told me something very interesting. It was a very interesting take on the scripture. You've heard that scripture. um, To be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And most people, when they read that, they read that as you can be angry, but just don't sin. It's not a sin to be angry, but just don't sin when you're angry. And don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. They oftentimes interpret that uh, to mean don't let the day end angry. If, if you're upset with your spouse, make up with them, tell them you love them, be at peace when you go to sleep because you don't want to be at war when you go to sleep. And most people interpret it that way, and maybe that's what it means. But my friend mentioned to me something I'd never heard before, and I really like this. I think I'm going to preach on this. That's not what the Jews teach. The Jews teach it means to stay angry, to stay angry about the right thing. Be angry and sin not, meaning you know, I've lived long enough to know that it's right to be angry about the right things. I'm angry about injustice. I go to war against false doctrine. I fight against the enemies of God. And let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What they teach is it's a reference to Joshua fighting the battle when he told the sun to stand still. And don't stop fighting until the battle's over. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. So fight till the enemy's defeated. Let your anger burn hot until the job's totally done. If it's injustice, fight it till it's conquered. Don't let the sun, don't let the battle die. But, but finish the battle. Don't let the innocent continue to be exploited. Don't let false doctrine continue to thrive in your life. Don't let the enemies of God have, have dominion in your heart and in your family. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. It was an interesting take. I, I, I kind of like that perspective. But both of them were willing to fight for what was right in their lives, both Moses and his wife. And ultimately, Moses is obeying the pattern that God shows to him throughout his life. So God shows him when he goes up to Sinai, God shows him what heaven looks like. And he comes down and he builds the tabernacle and he built it according to what he saw. When you get to the book of Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, it talks about what heaven looked like, the true tabernacle that was, that was not pitched with hands and it says that the earthly tabernacle is a shadow of the true tabernacle that is in heaven. So there's an earthly tabernacle, there's a, 
a heavenly tabernacle. And Moses saw it, and he built everything according to that pattern. The difference between Balaam and Moses primarily is Moses obeyed the pattern. He did not let money distract him. He didn't let fame and attention from the ungodly distract him. He he had a godly wife that loved the pattern just as much as he did. And Moses then becomes a template for us in what he did and how he lived his life. Moses is a great example of God's universal kingdom. Moses marries a black woman. The Bible calls her an Ethiopian. Her skin is dark, and because of that, Miriam does not like it. Miriam is, is a Jew. She's a Hebrew. And she feels like only the Hebrews have access to this. Moses has married a woman that is foreign. And the Bible is filled with examples of foreigners having access to the things of God because God always wanted a universal people. It never was a genetic exclusivity. It was never a, uh, you know, my skin color is better. My people are better. We have the corner on the kingdom and on the truth. You know, when you read about Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he talks about the fact that there's many lepers that were in the days of the prophet, but unto none of them was he sent. But to Naaman, who's a Syrian, there were many lepers in Israel, but he didn't go to any of those. He reaches outside of Israel. And, and there were many widows in the land when, when the prophet was working. But unto none of the Israeli Hebrew widows was the prophet sent, but outside of, of Israel. So Moses marries this woman and she's a different skin tone than he is, presumably. Miriam doesn't like it. And the Bible says God strikes her with leprosy. I believe that churches that don't understand the beauty of God's diversity, I believe they become leprous. I believe they're cursed. I believe weird things happen. If you think that the only culture to be celebrated and the only skin color to be celebrated is white or brown or black or whatever skin tone you are, if you think that that is superior and supreme, you are falling into the same trap Miriam fell into and God cursed her. Moses had to jump in between and, and intervene for her, for her ignorance. And I think that it is ignorance when people don't celebrate the diversity of humanity, the beauty of humanity, the different tones and, and textures and languages. And God made a diverse people that is absolutely beautiful. And he died for every single one of them. Thank God he did. Thank God he died for you. Thank God he died for me. And thank God he gave us access through Jesus Christ. God curses Miriam with leprosy. Moses has to save her. So Moses becomes a template of this universal dynamic. God was saying, I'm going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not just for one select group. Instead of this being a genetically exclusive thing, Israel was supposed to model the things of God and to, to showcase them and then become a conduit and a gateway for not a club that you had to have the right genetics 
by the way, that's where all the genealogies come from. Those genealogies had to prove Abrahamic descent. And if you didn't have the right genealogy, you couldn't get in. Well, Jesus Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, without mother and without father, without beginning of days or end of life. And Jesus Christ is forever a priest after the order order of Melchizedek. He is a, a better priesthood of a better covenant that includes everybody. And there's no genealogy. You just trace yourself back to one, and his name is Jesus. So everybody has access, and Moses Moses now is a template of that. And then, you know, we could talk about the brazen altar, the brazen laver, seven candlesticks, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant. All of that's Acts 2.38. The, the laver, or I'm sorry, the altar, then the laver, and then the Holy of Holies, that's Acts 2.38. That's repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost. That's how you have to come to God. That is the physical manifestation of Acts 2.38. And so if anybody says you don't need to be baptized, they are removing the laver from the equation. If they say you don't need to repent, they are removing the altar of sacrifice, of death and bloodshed. If they say you don't need the Holy Ghost, they are removing the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies where the cloud came down and the fire came down and baptized the high priest. They're removing the elements, the salvific elements, and they are disobeying the pattern that was showed to Moses in the mount. And so people that come along that forsake that Acts 2.38, one God message, and they do it for money, you know, they become polished, they become skilled. I'm all for talent. I'm all for charisma and gifting. I love it. I think it can be used, and it is to be used by the glory of God. Matter of fact, the Greek word for gift is charisma. But Beware when you become so good that you become self-reliant. I think it's there when we gain wealth and the blessing accumulates and we grow, the size of our church grows, the, our skill set grows, we become acclimated to blessing and favor. We learn how to pull the levers and push the buttons. Beware that you don't fall after the error of Balaam, run greedily after the error of Balaam and fall in love with money, power. Blessing is not money alone. It's a small part of blessing. Money is a small part of blessing. But, but Balaam doesn't see that. He disobeys the pattern. Balaam actually, he becomes infamous in the scripture because he teaches Balak how to curse Israel. He cannot curse them directly, but he tells him how to curse him, them indirectly. He teaches that if you will cause Israel to sin, God will curse them. And so Balak seduces Israel with Moabite women. They fall in love with foreign people who don't love God are not committed to God. They begin to worship false gods. They become enamored and, and fueled by lust rather than 
the love of God and the purpose of God, and Israel falls into fornication and adultery and triggering the curse of God. And Balaam taught Balak how to cause Israel to stumble. I can't curse them, but I can show you how to get God to curse them. And unfortunately, that happens. That happens in our world. There are people with inside knowledge that have forsaken the things of God. They have gone after reward instead of the purpose of God, the blessing of God. And you'll see weak men. You'll see strong-willed women. You'll see carnal men and grieving women following them, feeling like they have no alternative, feeling trapped. What a sad state of affairs. I made up my mind, I want to be Moses. I want to be built like that. I want to follow that template. I want to obey the pattern that was showed to me in the mountain. Both men had mountains. Both men met angels. Both men talked to God, had the ear of God, communicated with God. Both men, men saw into the spirit world. Both men had inside access to the things of God. The angel stood ready to kill both of them. But the difference was one would follow the pattern and one wouldn't. One had a godly spouse, the other one didn't. And it makes all the difference in the world. So now we're in 2022, and unfortunately, I have a lot of friends that have become Balaams. They have listened to the world, the siren song of the world, and they have let down on their holiness distinctives, their separation from the world. They have allowed the world to seduce them. They have allowed Hollywood to come into their life. They have allowed a foreign voice. I never want God to have to ask me this question, who are these men with you? What is this that you have allowed? into your life? What foreign thing? No, I want to follow the purpose of God. I want, I want that Jerusalem sound. I want that highway of holiness, that one God message that resonates so profoundly and deeply. I, I, I hear my grandfather preach, my great grandfather preach, my father, my brother preach, and there is a sound to it. There is an authority to that, that pushes back darkness, that drives devils out, that brings victory and power and glory. And great men of God gave their lives and bled and sacrificed, and suffered for the things of God. I'm honored to, to pastor a great church that was founded by a, a great man of God, Bishop Johnny Godare, who gave his life for this. And there are some people who feel that I will eventually loosen and go liberal and walk away from the old paths. For all of you that are waiting on me to fall uh, into that dynamic, don't hold your breath. Do not hold your breath. I'm not backing up one inch. I love the old paths. I love the things of God. And I'm honored to continue forward because there's a pattern. There's a Jesus name, Acts 2.38, holy pattern that you can follow that will take you through 2022 and on. I mean, until Jesus comes, it will, it will carry you and keep you and sustain you. The Bible says to him that is able to keep you from falling. So I don't think we lose territory. I think we gain territory when we are obedient to the heavenly pattern. So we stand on the shoulders of, of great men of God, great women of God. 
and to those Balaams that, that receive the churches and the heritage of great people and walk away from them. Shame on you. Shame on you. God help you to have received such a wonderful heritage and then to lose it. It's a great travesty. It's a great, it's a great heaviness to my spirit. And nothing makes me happier than to see someone fall in love with a pattern. And that's what we hope you do here at the Biblos Network. That's what we want to promote. We want you to hear the word of God. Fall in love with the word of God. Fall in love with Jesus' name and oneness and all the great things of God. Read it line upon line, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little. And if we can turn this world into bibliophiles, lovers of the Bible, lover of the word, then we have accomplished our mission. So share it with your friends, share it with your family, put it on repeat and, and hear it and let the word of God strengthen you and keep you. Until the next time, God bless you and keep you. God cause his face to shine upon you. God be gracious unto you and give you peace.